Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1937, during the Great Depression, George Orwell described conditions in Britain's coal mines as a picture of hell in his book, The Road to Wigan Pier. He wrote, In the metabolism of the Western world, the coal miner is second in importance only to the man who plows the soil. He's a sort of grimy caryatid upon whose shoulders nearly everything that is not grimy is supported. Although our industrial consumer culture has evolved, there's a growing population of workers that bear a burden from choices we all make, a burden that's no longer dirty in a purely physical sense. Journalist A.L. Press examines the moral problems raised by work most of us tend to ignore in his new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. It's published by Farris Strauss and Giroux, and I'm very pleased that it brings A.L. Press to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Leonard. Now, work like coal mining may be dirty in a literal, physical sense. What sense of dirty do you mean in the title of your book? Well, I'm so glad that you began with that Orwell quote. Uh, I love I love that book, uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, and I quote that passage because it's so vivid. And, and what Orwell is talking about there, as, as you noted in your introduction, is that, um, you know, uh, he he sort of makes makes reference to all the literary people he knows who um, never think about coal miners and uh, the conditions they endure, but of course could not go on with their lives, could not do very basic things were it not for coal, which at the time, of course, powered uh, the British economy and the world economy. Uh, that's that's no longer the case uh, with coal, but it certainly well, is. We're the still case. mining it. <laughs> We're still mining it, uh, but but uh, you know, fo- I was going to just say fossil fuels generally. Mm-hmm. But but you're right that, that the key shift, um, you know, the difference between Orwell was describing the physical risks and 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 um, dangers that the coal miners went through, um, but. If we think about that very same industry today, and we think about people working, say, on oil rigs or in fracking, uh, the discomfort that I think a lot of people who never go to those places feel is 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 a moral one, right? That that here we are burning these fossil fuels as as a nation. Um, I think a quarter of the world's fossil fuels, um, and it's just not sustainable. Um, and yet it is still quite central to our lifestyles. And and that is, uh, you know, in this book, Dirty Work, uh, that's the kind of work I'm writing about and, and really honing in on the relationship between the lifestyles we lead and, and the social and, and, and you know, uh, cultural uh, things we've come to accept and uh, the dirty work that goes on to sustain uh, all, all of these things. And it's, in, in, in my contention, um, pretty central to to the way America runs and, and to the division of labor today. Isn't the dirty work you have in mind often performed by a few people, but with the quiet support of many? The cliche is, it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. Yes. So do uh, we dismiss that's... moral concerns by claiming that the work is necessary? I think two. I think two things make it. Um, well, I think that's one thing that leads to the dismissal of the moral concerns. Uh, you know, someone's got to do it. Um, but I think it's also very important that um, that there are two other kind of you know shared characteristics of all this work. And one is that it's done out of sight, so uh, we don't actually have to see it. Uh, very often. Um, and we can talk about some of the, the different examples I talk about, but, but in each one of them, 
uh, it's really not, um, you know, v- very visible uh, to much of society. Uh, and the second thing is that it tends to be delegated to people with fewer choices and opportunities. So, you know, I say in the book from the outset that one of the key things to understanding dirty work in America is that it is um, it is a reflection of inequality. It is organized and and takes place mainly in poorer communities, uh, in more remote areas of the country. And the people who do it tend to have, um, you know, fewer choices and opportunities. And that makes it very easy for for the rest of us to say, okay, someone's got to do it, just not us, just not me. But not just America. The sociologist Everett Hughes used the term dirty work to refer to how the German people, in effect, delegated oppression and genocide to the Nazis. That's right. Yeah. And I should make that point perfectly clear. And he published I, I did a not... paper called Good People and Dirty Work. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love the title to that to that uh, essay. And, and that essay both informs what, how I define dirty work, um, which is, you know, sort of unethical or morally troubling activity that society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't want to hear too much about. Um, and it's really from Hughes that I'm taking that. And you're right. He he his reflections on all of this were prompted by the example of the Nazis. And he went to Germany after the war and he spoke to the folks he knew there, uh, cosmopolitan intellectuals, uh, you know, scholars, people he had known before the war. And and he would bring up, you know, what happened under the Nazis. And what they would say is, you know, on the one hand, well, I'm, you know, we're ashamed of that and we have nothing to do with it and we had no choice. And please, please don't implicate us in any of that. Mm. And at the same time, but, you know, the Jews, uh, the Jews were a problem uh, and something had to be done to settle this problem. This is a specific thing he, he was heard one night when he was speaking to an architect. And he, he includes this conversation in this in this really powerful essay, Good People and Dirty Work. And and basically his point is, you know, it's not that the good people you know, were pro-Nazi. It's that they just, you know, sort of stopped asking questions about what was being done because at some level they accepted it. And he goes on to say that, you know, that dynamic, unfortunately, exists in every society. And that's what he said. He said he was concerned with the dirty work of all societies, not just Nazi Germany. In that essay, he referred to the lynching of uh, African-Americans. He did indeed. In fact, um, he was challenged after the essay came out on his interpretation of, you know, Germany and the Nazi period. And what I found so interesting was his insistence in these in, in sort of an exchange he had with another sociologist. He said, you know, I wasn't writing this essay for the Germans, sorry, to indict the Germans. Um, I was writing it for my fellow North Americans to warn us about the dangers in our own midst. Uh, and he, as, you're, as you said, he, he spoke about racial violence, about lynching, about police brutality. This was, you know, this was in 1962. Um, but so much that just reading that passage really kind of jumped off the page when I saw it, because I thought, you know, OK, let's let's take this same warning um, and apply it to our society today. And you examine the, the prison system, especially the case of one man, Darren Rainey, who was tortured and murdered in a Florida prison. What happened there? Yeah, um, it's it's a really um, uh, awful uh, case, and and 
It took place in the mental health ward of a prison in Florida. Uh, Darren Rainey was, um, by by many accounts, uh, suffered from schizophrenia. He was arrested on a drug charge. He was taken to this prison. Um, and he finds himself in the mental health ward. What he doesn't know is that um, this is a very abusive uh, facility, and he ends up being taken and locked inside of uh, a shower hmm. where the water was turned on and left on, uh, and he could not turn it off. It was controlled from the outside by some guards, and he ends up collapsing in that shower because of the heat that builds up and dies um, under really, really gruesome circumstances. And it is, it is a, a case that both horrifies us um, in its extremism, but also um, you know, is, is alarming because we have turned jails and prisons into the largest mental health institutions in this country. And so as much as we'd like to think of, of Rainey's case as a kind of you know, single example, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, unfortunately, we, we do uh, put so many people with severe mental illnesses in these institutions where abuse and violence does happen. And, and I write about how the workers then are impacted by that, not just the incarcerated people. Well, did many people have to turn a blind eye for the guards to get away with torturing Darren Rainey to death? Uh, it, other people in the prison. Uh, what about the people involved in the investigation? Did uh, Were any of the people responsible held to account? So the short answer is no. Um, you know, the, the uh, but, you know, and there are different levels of responsibility for this. Uh, yes, there were people, you know, I write about um, an official investigation that Florida undertook, which was really a whitewash. Um, and and uh, I think, you know, quoted uh, uh, an autopsy report that concluded that that Mr. Rainey had not suffered uh, any burns uh, on his body, uh, which the photographs uh, clearly showed he had. Um, so that's just that's just plain lying and deception. But but I think that that's not surprising. It's familiar. What's less familiar and what I really focus on in the book is the mental health staff at the prison. Um, you know, why did no one report it? Why, why didn't someone on that staff come forward and, you know, expose that this was happening? And I what I discovered was they didn't report it because they were afraid. Um, you know, they too relied on the guards at the prison for their own security. Um, and so that effectively m made them beholden to, to security. And I, I tell the story of one mental health aide in particular, Harriet Kraskovsky, who was so troubled. Um, she by tried she, to raise concerns. She did, in fact. Uh, that's, that's really important. Yeah. She, she, before she knew anything about this, before even it had happened, um, she was just trying her best to help the people in her care uh, in, a, in a really uh, difficult environment. And she was finding out that, you know, basic things like letting the guys out into the rec yard, uh, she just wasn't allowed to do that sometimes. And when she complained about it and raised concerns, um, she was started to be left, left alone in the rec yard. Uh, 
guards would leave her alone when she was in a group therapy session that, that she was conducting. She was a, a woman working in an all-male prison, and, and of course, she felt afraid. Um, and so she kind of learned the lesson, as she put it to me, you know, don't be a witness. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't say anything. And, and I know that, that some listeners will, will judge that and say, you know, but come on, you, ha- you have a moral responsibility to do so. Um, and, and I think that's a very legitimate argument. But um, as I try to show in the book, we also have a moral responsibility not to put people like Harriet into situations like that, because in most cases, most people are not going to say anything. And the larger responsibility has to be with us as a society in that we've turned these prisons into, you know, we've, we've essentially asked them to do the dirty work of warehousing the mentally ill without providing them with, with better services. How did politicians like Rick Scott, who's now a senator, but was then Florida's governor, of that, how did he react? Um, the Rainey case and the abuses at Dade um, did get into the papers eventually, and that was because there was a prisoner there, Harold Hempstead, who leaked the story to the Miami Herald and uh, the great investigative reporter Julie Brown, who did a piece, um, and it was a scandal. Uh, and there were, you know, a lot of statements made about how the culture would have to change, and uh, you know protections would be put in place so that people would report these things. Um, But as I report in the book, you know, eight years after this happened, um, use of force incidents in Florida's prisons have gone up um, and staffing and programs have been slashed and cut. And that was done thanks to politicians like Governor Scott, who, as you say, is now Senator Scott. so, uh, you know, the the truth is that um, I think the, the bigger responsibility goes higher up the chain. And there not only weren't people held accountable, you, you might even say uh, they, you know, they failed up in some ways. So conservatives have been most uh, concerned about the cost uh, of incarceration. <laughs> Yes. Um, I, I, I think that, um, and I, and I want to sort of emphasize this because it's, it's true actually of every example of dirty work I look at in the book. Um, you know, our, our awareness and our tolerance for the more systemic injustices that I think um, foster dirty work uh, are not unchangeable. Right. We, we can actually become more aware. We can decide, OK, this is this is untenable. Um, and so there has been, I think, uh, broadly speaking, on left, right and center, a real thinking of a, a real rethinking of mass incarceration. Um, you know, the, the, that and, and you're right that unfortunately it's been driven probably more by the costs and the price tag than by the moral questions. Um, but even so. There has been, you know, real change in, in, I think, public attitudes. What there hasn't been, I think, is coming around to, um, you know, seeing that we still have two million people in this country behind bars, and the conditions of incarceration are still, you know, just inhumane, and and um, in so many cases, and so there's a lot yet to be done, and I think that that the moral concerns haven't quite registered in the way that maybe the costs have. 
Hale Press's latest book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux, is uh, what we're discussing today on Leonard Lopate at Large. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. uh, what about, has a management of uh, the prison where Darren Rainey was murdered been privatized? Has privatization been used to facilitate dirty work? Absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, yes, the, the, the privatization there, is, though, is, is really interesting because it's not the kind that I think the media often reports on. So when we think of prison privatization, we often think of, you know, uh, companies like CCA that that own the prison and operate it for profit. Uh, Dade, the prison where Darren Rainey died, is not privately owned. It's a state prison. And yet Harriet Kraskowski, the mental health aide I mentioned, uh, she was not a state employee. She worked for a couple of private companies. One of them was Corizon, which is based in Tennessee. Another was Wexford, which is based in Pittsburgh. And those two companies, uh, Florida contracted out all of the health services and all of the mental health services in its correctional system uh, to those two private companies. And that's actually the most common form of privatization I learned as I was writing this book. It's a much bigger business than actually just owning the prisons. It's, you know, supplying the food and, and the health services and all these other things. And I think that's where there's a lot more hidden corruption that goes on. But it also suggests that distance is uh, a an aspect of all of this. You note that the prison is hard to get to. And Everett Hughes noted, quote, the greater their social distance from us, the more we leave in the hands of others a sort of mandate by default to deal with them on our behalf. Absolutely. And and that's both physical distance and moral distance. I think that, that Hughes was saying both. He was he was actually talking specifically, and again, this was nineteen sixty-two, that essay, about, you know, society's attitudes to prisoners. And he was saying, you know, it's it's very mixed because um you may have um when a scandal arises and people read about abuses, they say, Oh, that's terrible. But but he you know, prisoners are what he called an outgroup in society. They're not quite considered with the same compassion that that people in the, what he called the in-groups are. And, you know, if we think about um, just fast forwarding today, absolutely. Dade, Dade CI is, is a state prison not far from Miami, but very few people who go to Miami ever go there or ever see it. Um, and the privatization does have an effect on the secrecy aspect because I actually did go to Dade and I, and I arranged with the Department of Corrections to, to tour the prison and talk to some folks who work in it. But I was not allowed to talk to the private employees of the mental health contractor. And what they reason did, not, did they give you? <laughs> it was it was quite amazing, Leonard, because I, there I was. I was I was actually on the grounds of the prison um, and I assumed I would be speaking to them and I didn't get a chance to. So I asked the warden at the time, you know, can I, can I go talk to them? And the warden directed me to the uh, head of media relations at the then at the Department of Corrections in Florida. And he said, you have to call Wexford. That was the private company that was then in charge. So I called Wexford and I was, as I say, inside the prison at the time. And they declined to allow me to speak to 
the employees. And what was amazing to me is I then I then called the Department of Corrections back and said, you know, here I am. And can't I go talk to them? And the department said, you know, it's Wexford's call, um, which is really a seeding of responsibility to this private company. Well, the distance isn't just physical. Uh, We're also talking about uh, uh, distances like social distances, like race, wealth, education, uh, secrecy, knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, just to to stay with with Darren Rainey for for one minute. Um, you know, I visited uh, his brother, um, and I visited the neighborhood where he grew up uh, in Tampa, and you know, uh, very poor neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood. Um, and his brother, you know, said to me, uh, one of the first things he said to me actually was, you know, uh, if you walk around here, you'll you'll see a lot of people who who are not in their proper state of mind, but are not getting any kind of services, uh, not getting any kind of treatment. Uh, and I think we've, we've criminalized, um, you know, mental illness for the poor in this country. And part of the reason for that is that it's, it's hidden. Um, you know, it, it affects mostly people with lesser means. Has privatization of the prisons produced the savings that politicians have promised? Uh, not in the case of Florida. Um, you know, you mentioned that phrase mandate by default. And, and I use that phrase because these private um, companies, Wexford and Horizon, were told they were given a mandate to to save taxpayers 10 percent. You know, I forget the exact percent. Maybe it was 7 percent. But basically, the contract said you will deliver these services, but you will do it more cheaply. Hmm. Um, and to me, that is a mandate of essentially to, you know, do the kinds of things we then ended up reading about, which was, you know, giving people with cancer um, ibuprofen instead of uh, actual treatment, um, cutting the number of hospital visits that uh, that prisoners uh, made. All of these are cost-saving uh, measures. Paying but lower cost- salaries, too. Uh, absolutely. Um, Harriet Kriskovsky w- w- earned $12 an hour. Um, and, uh, you know, the... the so, you know, the, the end result of all that is you introduce um, incentives for this work to be done in ways that harm people. Um, and, and, and in that sense, instead of being a very noble thing, you know, providing these, these needed services, it becomes what I term dirty work. Doesn't raw physical distance play a huge role in another kind of dirty work? like the use of drones in American wars? Absolutely. Uh, that's that's the s- another section of the book I I um, Well, I'm I trying to cover to. as much of your book as I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it's, uh, it, it definitely does. And, and I think that, um, you know, when we think about, I think when people first heard about drone warfare and the sort of image of these unmanned aerial vehicles hovering and then a strike being delivered. I think that um, the assumption was this is going to turn war into a video game. And it's going to, in a sense, remove the whole question of whether we should even be fighting the wars from public discourse, because it'll just be carried out by machines. And 
I suggest in, in that section of the book that, that it has actually removed. The, the second part of that is true. Um, you know, the drone wars have kind of, except, of course, very recently when the pullout of Afghanistan, there was a drone strike that, that received a lot of news mm-hmm. coverage. But most drone strikes don't. Well, there was um, a, and, it was a, a serious case of misjudgment, that drone strike. Yes, um, but so, I think that so that was a different um, kind of dirty work. It was actually it, killing innocent people. But I think I think that the the you know in my in my est- estimation and in 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 the views of the, the drone operators that that I interview in the book and and tell their stories very you know in in, in great detail um, the the people who were in who are in the program are seeing and have seen these strikes and often aren't exactly sure who was hit and who wasn't right so so the the thing i said earlier about turning war into a video game that turns out to be hmm. uh, a misperception that a, a lot of the people in the drone program has had a very high rate of burnout um, but, but wait, wait, wait. I want to stop because Philip Olson, the former U.N. special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary killings, referred to PlayStation mentality to killing in, in these drones. That's right. He did. But you I said don't that's not really he, true. I, I don't think that's right. Um, and, you know, I, I tell the story of um, Christopher Aaron, uh, who was in the drone program and who, you know, he, he did admit. Uh, and, and said very openly when when he first started in the program, he would see these strikes hit and feel this kind of adrenaline rush of satisfaction. And, you know, he was sure, well, we'd hit a target that, you know, he, he, he joins after 9-11. He's very patriotic. He really believes in the mission. Um, and he didn't think that much about it, uh, about maybe, you know, whether an innocent person might have might have been there, uh, but later on, uh, Aaron ends up going to Afghanistan, and he starts to question whether the war is going as well as his commanders have told him, um, because he sees that areas of Afghanistan where he was told there was progress, um, he can't even go there. Uh, the U.S. it's 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 because it's it's either chaotic or, or you know things things are not going well um, and at that point he starts to develop doubts and really in it, it was a sort of sequential thing but sometime later he begins to rethink the strikes that he witnessed and he starts to you know wonder wait a minute did I really know who was hit or not you know he recalls again we didn't talk about operational details, which are classified. But he did tell me things like, you know, we would say there was one target in the building, but then we would see that there were a number of coffins uh, the next day being paraded through the streets. And he would start to replay this in his mind and think, you know what, I'm not so sure I know uh, who, who was hit and not. And I think that that um, you know, I say all of this, and and that section of the book is really centrally concerned with the fact that um, you know, in war, uh, killing the enemy, firing at the enemy, is sanctioned. But um, so much of how soldiers, and whether they're in the drone program or, or on the ground, so much of of 
what the residue of that, the aftermath, uh, depends on whether you can tell a story that justifies mm-hmm. what happened. So some of them experience that, remorse, like like uh, Christopher Aaron. Well, so so in Aaron's case, and, and I think in, for anyone in the drone program, there's there's one basic issue, which is that. Um, you know, they're not on the battlefield itself, right? And so one of the, the most basic ways to um, to justify something that happened is to say, well, you know, on the battlefield, it's it's kill or be killed, right? You're, you're facing enemy fire. Um, but drone operators are not. Um, they're distant from it. Um, and yet they're making these decisions that have life and death consequences, not just for civilians in Afghanistan, for the targets uh, that are under surveillance, but also for, you know, what are called friendlies, uh, the troops on the ground. And so it's a very freighted uh, set of decisions for people in what they call the kill chain. Um, and then you have to, you know, step away and enter a society that, you know, has kind of forgotten that these wars are even happening. And when we think about the burnout rate and the sort of, you know, the, the, the stress and the psychic distress that has been documented by the military itself, by the way, in um, among drone operators, uh, these are some of the reasons. And you say that details of our use of drones is largely classified. Has the practice of embedding journalists with our military forces provided a false sense of transparency to our contact in, in situations like that? Hmm. I think that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it 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 may have when we were engaged in, you know, ground wars. Um, I think with with drones, it's a little bit different um, because, again, to go back to the secrecy and the hiddenness, um, what struck me when I was talking to people like Chris Aaron and other people in the drone program is that we as a society, you know, have asked in a sense and have, I think, you know, uh, largely speaking, uh, prefer that this distance warfare be done because then it's less costly. It, the, the, troop, our, the troops on our side don't, um, are not exposed to risk. Um, but, but we as a society also don't see the strikes. We don't see the footage. We're not shown it. Um, whereas the people in the program see it constantly, right? And they're, they're there hour after hour. Um, and to me, there's something quite disturbing about that disjuncture, just the, the sort of extreme exposure of the people who are there at, in, in the drone program and the society that in, a, that in a sense has kind of forgotten about it and washed its hands of it. Well, you also interviewed Heather Leinbaugh. Her motives for joining the drone program were different from those of Christopher Aaron. And there has been a debate over possible autonomous drones, drones controlled algorithmically. Can we delegate dirty work to algorithms? Um, We haven't yet, uh, thankfully. Um, But I think that... um, with the drone program, it's interesting. I, one of the things that, that one person in the program said to me was, was just expressing resentment, actually, at a phrase I used earlier, unmanned aerial mm. vehicles, uh, because what he said, you know, they're not unmanned. Um, they're hypermanned uh, because there are so many people, uh, imagery analysts, sensor operators, uh, commanders, you know, that, that, that are sort of in this kill chain, um, that it actually involves a great many people. Now, w- will that be true in the future? Uh, 
I, I, I don't actually know. I, I, I think it's a really important and interesting question. But, but you mentioned that, that Heather Leinbau joined the drone program for a different reason. And that reason was um, that, you know, she was in a town where she felt there weren't a lot of opportunities um, uh, in Pennsylvania, and she wanted to travel and and you know get an education perhaps and and just kind of get out of where she was. Um, and I talk about that because um, you know the, the the chapter of of the book about her is called the other one percent, and. When, when I say the other 1%, I don't mean the 1% of the richest Americans that were, were named by you know, protesters in Occupy Wall Street. I mean the 1% of Americans who now have fought and served in the, the wars since 9-11. And that is uh, a striking figure for a society that you know, has fought these wars for as long as it has. It's made it, I think, easier, um, again, to, to kind of delegate the the whole the whole business of war to um, you know people in a very small segment of society. The burden is not shared. The sacrifice is not shared. It's really just um, concentrated in that one percent. As it was in Nazi Germany. Uh, this is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Back with Ale Press, his latest book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Um, our prison population is disproportionately black and brown. Have Americans, in effect, used racial inequality to characterize the prison population as dangerous or in some way deserving of awful treatment, much as the Germans described the Jews? Um, I don't think there's any question that um, race played a role, a, a huge role um, in mass incarceration um, and in the, you know, not years, but I would say decades of um, uh, because mass incarceration didn't happen overnight. Uh, it happened, as, as we all know, um, over the course of numerous administrations um, and and in places that were run by both Republicans and Democrats. And I think that, um, you know, if the percentage of uh, the incarcerated who are black and brown, uh, if we reversed the percentages and uh, and they were white, the idea of putting so many people behind bars and building the world's largest prison system, um, just it, it's hard. It's hard to imagine the same, you know, bipartisan, uh, broad popular support. Uh, so I don't think there's any question uh, that that racism and um, and in a sense, just the dehumanization of um, people defined as other um, Played, played a significant role in the buildup of the prison system. In dirty work generally, is it important to be able to characterize the victims as deser deserving pain or in being indifferent to it? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Hughes, Everett Hughes, who coined this idea of, of, of dirty work, um, you know, he talked about uh, how a lot of this work has what he called an unconscious mandate from society. And I think that's a really, really powerful phrase. And, you know, again, just when when we think about things like, men, you know, jails and prisons being relied upon as mental health asylums, it's not that many people would say, oh, that's a great idea, right? I think very few people, if you sort of start with the premise of, do you think this is a good idea? Um, you know, most people are going to say, no, um, that, that sounds like like a really lousy idea and, and, and it probably will, um, you know, lead to mistreatment. Um, but what about, are you willing to pay taxes to support, you know, community mental health services? Oh, um, seeing that are debated you, right now. Exactly. So, so, so the, the, it's, we have to think that again, that phrase unconscious mandate, it's the questions we don't ask. It's the, it's the things that um, we want to sort of, not addressed directly because at some level we're okay with it. Um, or maybe we just don't want to give it too much thought. And I think that's what, you know, enables this dirty work to go on. It's, it's this, you know, sort of passive acquiescence to it. Well, Everett Hughes examined the nature of dirty work in the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, has a lot changed? Is it still the same dirty work only, uh, with a different look? I, I mean, I think a lot has changed. And, um, you know, there are sections of the book where I, I sort of take detours into various historical examples. Um, you know, there, there are, um, you know, I, I think that one would be hard pressed to find any society where some dirty work didn't exist. And I think that it's probably the case that everywhere it happens, there is some you know, purposeful delegation of it to um, people at the bottom of the social ladder so that, you know, the elites don't have to think about it. They can sort of uh, have it done by others. Um, but uh, I do think that, um, you know, in some ways, if we think about when Hughes wrote versus when I'm writing, in some ways there's been progress. Uh, in other ways, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, I think there are there are examples in the book where, things have actually gotten worse. You write about slaughterhouses. Who are uh, the victims there, the people who work in the slaughterhouses or the animals that are being slaughtered? They're both. Um, and and that's, a, that's an example. That's exactly what I was thinking of when I, when I thought of, you know, things getting worse. Um, because, you know, I trace in the book the kind of history since Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Um, of course, The Jungle was written... Um, at the t turn of the prior century, um, and captured the and it shocked you know, the public, and things supposedly changed. That's right. Uh, it shocked the public. Um, th some things did change. Um, both, you know, passage of laws to improve inspection of meat uh, and, and change uh, the conditions that Sinclair described. But the other thing that changed is that. You know, unions organized the workforce in places like Chicago. Uh, there was a very strong union and actually a very uh, progressive union in terms of uh, specifically on the issue of race and brought um, white and black and immigrant workers together to fight for better conditions. Uh, 
and succeeded um, in in really quite impressive ways. So by by the you know 1960s, although working in a meatpacking facility was not easy work, and and certainly some people would have would have seen it as as dirty just because of the fact that it's you know there's there's animals and and animal slaughter is is a dirty business in 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 many people's eyes nevertheless the, the the pay in the industry was higher than the average factory job and the conditions were uh less brutal than they are today if we fast forward to today we have an industry where the workforce is overwhelmingly consists of immigrants many of them undocumented and subject to a lot of exploitation in part because of their uncertain status. Were you able to interview any of them? Yes, I was. Uh, quite a few. Um, I, I focus in particular on the poultry industry because um, chicken is America's most popular meat. And, um, you know, the popularity of it has really just uh, just grown so dramatically in the, in the last 40, 50 years. Um, and I look at a poultry slaughterhouse in Texas where most of the workforce is Mexican immigrants. And the ones I spoke to, several of the ones I spoke to, uh, were undocumented. And uh, at that particular workforce, at, at, sorry, at that particular plant, as in so many slaughterhouses today, the speed of the lines keeps getting faster. It, it just, uh, you know, the more and more production um, per minute, literally per minute, per hour. Um, and and that's because, you know, the companies make more money that way uh, and consumers uh, pay less that way because they can produce more per hour per plant. Uh, but the people who pay for that, uh, you know, or it's both the animals and the people who pay for that because um, the workers at this plant were suffering very high rates of injury. Uh, which they described uh, very very painful injuries just through repetitive strain, and they were also they also suffered injuries to their dignity. Um, the women who worked there were not given bathroom breaks, um, even when they complained about it. They would be yelled at if they if they said, you know, I have to leave the line to to go to the bathroom. Um, and I actually attended a, a, a protest where, um, you know, they held aloft signs in both Spanish and English um, calling for the right to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and we don't really think of that as a contested right in this country. And yet here I was at one of the you know, largest poultry company companies in the country um, and, you know, uh, a company that uh, whose products sell in supermarkets across the land. Now, you say that much of this work is done by undocumented immigrants, and yet there is a uh, there are major protests about allowing any immigrants into the country the, these days. What impact would that have on some of the dirty work that is being done, that has to be done? Well, I, th I think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I... Um, I describe one particular place where um, there there actually was uh, a sudden uh, shortage of workers because of the, the the raids that took place during the Trump administration uh, and the crackdown on illegal immigration. And um, you know what happened at in that town is that uh, the you know the local white population did not end up applying for work at that plant. Um, and what, what did happen was that some 
uh, black residents in the area ended up being hired and and actually then expressed discomfort that, you know, they got these jobs in part because they know the government was was really going after uh, these immigrants. Um, and so, you know, what an example of, of dirty work that is, you know, delegated to um, you know, black and brown people, and and that at the same time that the white population in, there as elsewhere is saying, you know, we can't have more immigrants in this country. My guess is A.L. Press, E-Y-A-L Press, his latest book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, published by Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, is there white-collar dirty work? For example, healthcare insurers figuring out ways to deny coverage to dying parents or the, the people in the financial industry who created the collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities that played a role in the financial collapse of 2008? I don't think there's any question that there is white collar work that uh, is uh, morally troubling or unethical. You just did a very good job of describing some some types of that. Um, you know, we could go even further and talk about uh, you know software engineers who help design programs that end up being used for spyware, um, which is a story that, you know, was recently in the news and, and actually the Israeli newspaper Haaretz uh, reported on, on some of the people who worked at that company that, that, that designed that spyware. There's no question that, um, you know, plenty of white collar work has really, really deeply troubling uh, consequences. But you asked initially, is it dirty work? And, you know, as I define it, the answer is no. And that's because dirty work, in, in the specific sense I'm using the term, refers to work that um, makes the people who do it feel stigmatized or devalued in some, you know, really fundamental way. And if we think of, I actually write specifically about the folks on Wall Street who, um, you know, were involved in some of the uh, sketchy activity that led to the financial crash in 2008. Um, and it's, it's very true that, uh, you know, they were criticized um, and, and that, you know, protesters stood on, on, you know, places like Zuccotti Park and, um, uh, and said, you know, this is wrong. Um, but I don't think uh, the stigma stayed for very long, the stigma on people who are financial analysts, financial advisors, uh, bankers, and so forth. And why is that? Um, in my view, it's because stigma is a function of power. Um, and if you have power, uh, and I think bankers and, and, and many white-collar professionals do, it's certainly compared to, to folks like the immigrants in you know, slaughterhouses, uh, then you have all kinds of ways to, um, you know, feel a little bit better about what you do. One, one of the most simple ways is that it's likely that you're, you're making a lot of money. And, um, and while that alone doesn't, 
you know, make you a good person. Uh, in this country, success and, and material success in particular has always kind of correlated with virtue and with a sense that, um, you know, people, people may look down on you, some, but others are going to envy you. But don't um, some people enjoy inflicting pain? For example, in 2002, before she was the CIA director under Donald Trump, Gina Haspel oversaw torture at a secret prison in Thailand, and a whistleblower, John Kiriakou, reported that she enjoyed the torturing of prisoners. I don't think there's any question that that some people do, and and you know I actually there's a when I write about prisons I sort of profile a, a person who had worked as a prison guard, and this person shared his diary with me. Um, and in the diary, he, he wrote about what he called serial bullies. Uh, these were these were guys, you know, he worked with who, uh, as you just said, you know, enjoyed uh, being cruel. Um, I think those types of people can be found probably in every profession. Um, and, you know, uh, that's part of what, you know, humanity is. Um, but my book focuses on not on those cases it, it, and not on those individuals. It, it focuses, I would say, more on gray actors, on people who uh, are not necessarily, you know, in, in, out to be brutal uh, and are also not, you know, people of, you know, saintly virtue. There, there are probably as few of those as, as, as the ones who just, you know, are out for uh, cruelty all the time. Uh, it's more the gray actors that I focus on. And I think I focus on them because I think th they, in a sense, are all of us. Um, I think that, that, that most people have, you know, depending on the incentive structure and, and the situation, uh, the capacity to uh, display moral courage and to be very principled and and the capacity to really avert one's eyes and kind of let things happen and, and be in, implicated in things that go against one's values. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, but didn't Everett Hughes stress the need to recognize the role that we all play when he was writing about this six decades ago? He did. Um, and, and, and I are think that... We, the, uh, in a way... Uh, if the guard uh, in the prison or the drone analysts are, are dirty workers, are the rest of us the dirty delegators? And you have <laughs> a minute and a half to answer. I'm sorry. That's a powerful way to put it. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I endorse the formulation Hughes makes, which is that, um, that the dirty workers are agents of society, um, that we shouldn't actually see them as separate, um, that, you know, there certainly are, you know, people, listeners. I think who who would say I'm not implicated in the prisons and drone wars and all of that. I don't support that. But we're eating um, the meat or whatever. But, the, but, but exactly. But but then what about if you hold a, a, an electronic device that has you know cobalt mine mm -hmm. in it, it, cobalt that was mined in Africa, or mm -hmm. or um, you know fossil fuels that that power our lot, uh, so much, or or eating meat. So I do think that you know it's not so simple. To, to separate it off, and we should see them as our agents. I hope Joe Manchin is listening to this. Um, <laughs> my great thanks to my guest, A.L. Press. His latest book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, is published by Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. It's been eye-opening. I really appreciate your being on our show. Thank you so much, Leonard. Thank you for having me on. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more, you can access past interviews at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you for your support for the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard financially by this pandemic, and many of our longtime members have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopez at large on the air. Again, um, the way to do that is by calling 212-209-2950 right now or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support WBAI without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. You can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution of any amount by, as I said, going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Remember, we, WBA, is supported 100% by the generosity of its listeners. We don't take money from foundations and no grants, nothing. It's all you. And I think that allows us to be unique in the way that we present things, but it also sometimes creates major financial difficulties. My great thanks to everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of London Lopez at large at whatever level that they're doing it. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Robert J. Davis will discuss his new book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. We'll see you then.